Okay, welcome everybody. I, I hope you can see me and hear me live. Um, my name is Michael Mason. I'm the director of the Middle East Centre at the London School of Economics and Political Science. And I'm pleased to welcome you to this um, public event. This is an event um, being held by the Middle East Centre at LSE. And it's part of a wider um, Marion Forum launch. Some of you will have been involved in some of the other, other events today. But for those of you who haven't, just to say briefly, this is a bold initiative by, by the school to consider to try to address some of the key problems facing us uh, in the current era and thinking about new ways of, of, of debate, of discussion, of problem solving. And particularly in terms of today's events, thinking about the notion of leadership. What does it mean? What is, le what is effective leadership? Uh, effective leadership in the face of particular uh, major problems uh, or crisis. And of course, today's focus is on the COVID-19 pandemic. So this session is a critical assessment of the COVID-19 impact in the MENA region. Um, the uh, event, which runs to uh, uh, 5.45, British summer time, will be involved. We have three uh, wonderful speakers lined up for you. Each of them is, is, has, has uh, uh, wonderful expertise and experience uh, uh, in the region of the region. And then what we're going to do, each of the three speakers I'll introduce shortly, we'll speak in turn for about 10 minutes. The discussion um, for participants, we're going to ask you please to post your questions in the questions and answers box, which is at the bottom of the Zoom window. Okay, and what I'll do is I will uh, select questions from the questions and answers and relay those to the participants. Um, if we get lots of questions, I will probably combine and collate questions. So I apologize in advance if I don't name check you for a particular question. Uh, important to note that this event will be recorded. It's also being uh, live streamed on, on Facebook. And so welcome very much uh, uh, for joining us. Um, if I just say very quickly, very briefly, of course, uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic is a, is a global problem. In terms of me now, I was, I was uh, looking at a World Health Organization announcement yesterday, which now gives us a, a figure of a million plus infections in the MENA region, classified as 22 countries from Morocco to Pakistan, in which there have been 25,000 deaths. And five countries have 80% of those deaths, uh, Egypt, Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, and Saudi Arabia. So this truly is a serious problem, but this panel will not just be addressing the public health impacts of this problem. This panel will be considering also the kind of the, the social economic consequences and particularly the plight of uh, uh, specific vulnerable groups in the MENA region. MENA is a heterogeneous region and, we, and of course there are different impacts felt in different parts of the region. Um, so I will introduce you to the three speakers in turn in terms of the running order of those three speakers. Um, the first, speaker, the first speaker is Dr. Ahmed Galal, who's currently chair of the Board of Trustees of the Middle East and North Africa Health Policy Forum. Uh, 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 Dr. Ahmed was Egypt's finance minister 2013 to 14, the managing director of the Economic Research Forum and the director of the Egyptian Center of Economic Studies. Before that, he worked for 18 years for the World Bank, where he conducted research and provided policy advice for governments in several regions. Uh, after Ahmed's uh, spoken, we are uh, pleased to introduce uh, Rosna Begum, 
is a senior hu human rights, uh, women's rights researcher at the Human Rights Watch uh, organization. Her particular focus is on discrimination and violence against women and girls in the Middle East and North Africa region. Uh, she's got a particular interest in the, uh, the plight, uh, vulnerability of migrant domestic workers in the Middle East and domestic violence against women and girls. Um, importantly, she led the advocacy uh, for Human Rights Watch on a new global international labor organization treaty relating to violence and harassment at work, uh, which was adopted in June 2019. Rothner is also in an individual capacity, a member of the ILO regional office for Arab States Migration Advisory Group. And our third uh, speaker, I'm delighted to announce, is uh, Dr. William Hamoude, who's currently an assistant professor at the Institute of Community and Public Health at Bizet University in Palestine and formerly of the Arab Council for the Social Sciences postdoctoral fellow and visiting researcher at the Department of Social Behavioral Sciences at Bizet University. Um, she's particularly interested in understanding how political social transformation impact health, psychosocial well-being and population processes, particularly in conflict areas. So her comments will be related uh, uh, or focused on conflict areas as well as in how health systems and social institutions develop and shift in relation to political, economic and structural factors, particularly in developed countries or developing countries and uh, post-colonial settings. So that's our three speakers. We're very, very grateful to have those three speakers available today to talk to us as part of this, this uh, MENA session within the Mariam Forum launch. So with that, hoping you can all hear me uh, loud and clear, We'll go now to our first speaker, uh, Dr. Ahmed Galal. Thank you very much, Michael, uh, for the kind introduction, and uh, really delighted to uh, join that the launching of the Miriam Forum. And I was pretty much, uh, I was quite intrigued by the slogan that was put forward that's called from rulership to leadership. And I think actually it's a fantastic genius uh, slogan. I think the region can benefit enormously from moving from rulership to leadership. But that's by way of introduction. Uh, let, me, uh, let me specify the, the three key points that I want to make. Uh, I'm an economist by training and most of what I'm going to be saying is not going to be as much on the health, public health side. It's going to be a lot more on the economic side. Um, and I want to summarize what everything I'm going to tell you in three words. One is impact, and the second one is response, and the third one is going forward. And of course, I cannot think regionally without thinking globally. So in all cases, I would be uh, making some points that, that would start probably from a global perspective, then uh, try to ask myself, uh, in which way the MENA region is different that will make either the impact or the response or even the questions about going forward uh, uh, different. Now, in terms of impact, I think we all know uh, and we are very aware of the devastating global impact of the current crisis. It emanated from the health sector, but now it's very quickly spread to uh, all countries around the globe. The latest estimates about the economic impact of the crisis are quite extraordinary. 
uh, at least according to the IMF and other international financial institutions that I'm not going to name each one of them, but at least we expect the GDP growth rate will decline in the year 2020 by 8%. There was a time when we were talking about a growth rate of 3% and really crying over it, not feeling very happy about it. And now we are going in the negative zone and the, the global economy is going to grow by minus 8%. Unemployment is going to go up by 700 million jobs. Trade is going to decline by 30%. Remittances are going to decline by 20%. FDI is going to decline by 40%. Poverty is going to rise by at least 70 million people. This is a scene that we have not seen since the Great Depression. It's a very different uh, uh, crisis or a shock, external shock, than anything we have seen. In fact, the 2008 crisis pales next to that one. And I think we all would remember this episode as something exceptional in history and would always uh, go back and ask ourselves, how, do we, how did we deal with it? Uh, now, this is the impact more broadly. What about the Middle East? I can tell you that the problem in the Middle East is likely to take on, is likely to leave a turn to the worst uh, for different reasons. One, the recession is or the crisis is coinciding with a falling oil prices and the falling oil prices in some countries has incredibly significant impact on the exporting countries and believe it or not that impact also finds its way to the countries that are not exporting neighboring countries through remittances through uh, unwillingness probably to provide uh, official support uh, even through tourism whichever way you look at it the foreign oil prices, along with the crisis, is, is, would make the problem even worse. The second point is that the region has more than its share of crises. And the problem, the conflicts are, in, in, or, uh, are intense and continue to be intense in countries like Yemen, in Syria, and now in Libya. Uh, and of course, on top of all the problems that we have had in the past, uh, certainly the Palestinian-Israeli question. Uh, that makes it difficult because there are the migrants, because there are the people who are deprived, because it's very hard when the situation becomes difficult from a health or otherwise. It impacts these groups even more. Uh, and then uh, the last point is that the region generally has a weak health systems. Uh, it's not necessarily inclusive. It's not providing a good quality. Uh, there is no universal insurance uh, in, in most countries. So the health system is not really prepared to deal with the pandemic. So for all these reasons, my expectation, the point I wanna make is that the crisis is unheard of before since the Great Depression, since 1930s of last, uh, the last century. Uh, and the region has reasons to make us worry a little more uh, about it in terms of an impact. Let me move on to the next point, which has to do with the response. How did the world respond to the crisis this time around compared, let's say, with 2008. I would say that it was much worse than before. Uh, the level of coordination among the leaders, uh, whether the G7 or G20, is, is very modest uh, compared with what was done in 2008. The willingness on the part of the rich countries to support the poor countries is almost non-existent. I mean, there is a little bit here and there, and there is some lip service, 
uh, here and there, but it really isn't there. And then uh, there were even attacks on international institutions like WHO. I mean, the US in fact refrained from continuing to support the WHO temporarily at least, if not fully, God knows what's gonna happen afterwards. And then uh, the IFIs came up with some initiatives that I think are quite decent and are providing great lines to poor countries. But I think the magnitude is relatively modest compared to the needs of these countries. Now, let me move on to the Middle East. Uh, how did countries in the Middle East respond? Well, to begin with, the Arab League is missing in action. We heard nothing about the Arab League trying to pull together an initiative that combines forces, coordinates among the countries of the region uh, to get things going. So that is on the regional side. Uh, on the level of each country, there has been the pattern that has been followed by other countries. There is easing uh, fiscal stimulus packages. Uh, there is monetary easing, uh, lower interest rate and uh, additional injections of funds so that firms and, and, and people cannot uh, go under. But the trouble is, in that, is that not all countries have the fiscal space to afford this fiscal and monetary easing. And essentially, they will end up borrowing. And borrowing is going to come back, hunting them eventually down the road. So the response, they would like to respond more. I can give you Egypt as an example. I mean, if the US was able to uh, put forward a package, the first stimulus package of about 10% of GDP, the stimulus package that Egypt came up with is less than 1% of GDP. That already gives you a sense of the order of magnitude of what these countries can do. Of course, the countries that are rich in resources are able to do more, but, but there are many countries in the region which are not. And that brings me to a point that people tend to overlook, which is a lot of people, I keep hearing it, a lot of people come across describing the region as if it's almost a group of homogenous countries. That's not true. The, group of, the countries in the region are as diverse and as heterogeneous as anything you have seen in your life. Any statement about the region in one unit, I think it's missing the point. And you can find the differentiation along different dimensions. There is a dimension of size. You know, there's a country that has more than 100 million people and a country that has less than a million people. You can differentiate between them in terms of countries with conflicts, countries with no conflicts. You can differentiate between them in terms of countries with uh, a lot of oil, a lot of natural resources and that has its own implications, but I would leave that for now, and the countries that are starving for capital. Uh, so, so one should not be really generalizing across the region. Let me, I think I, my time is almost up, so let me move to my third point, which is going forward. And in fact, I have very little to say about going forward, other than asking questions. And let me give you a few, a few questions, maybe Khalid, who's come to who's coming in afterwards to comment on, 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 the, on the presentations can give us answers. At the global level, we are all wondering a few things. On the political front, are we going, are we on the verge of a new global order or disorder? The story of China versus the US and the, who, who is going to be defining the terms and governance uh, rules of the game, sort of. In the Middle East, are we likely to depart from the so-called authoritarian bargain that keeps the region hostage to uh, a ruling elite that essentially uh, benefited itself uh, much more than benefited the region? And that's why the region is not making 
as much progress as possible. And, and this story of the authoritarian, authoritarian bargain is something that I can come back to in the Q&A uh, period, but it's something that's very well traveled by people who write on the political economy of, of the Middle East. Uh, I mean, is a, on the economic front, are we giving up on globalization, moving into deglobalization? Uh, what are we going to do with all problems of the climate and, uh, and the increasing inequality? So there are big questions as well on the economic front. And then finally, if I were to put on my optimistic hat, which I always do, uh, maybe, maybe, who knows, maybe that uh, crisis is an opportunity to wake up and all of us, both at the regional level, at the international level, at the civil society level, at uh, Michael and myself level, uh, we are going to fix the world and make it a better place. Maybe, maybe. I will stop here and look forward to the Q&A. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ahmed. I, I love that um, opportunity to wake up in, in so many different ways, yeah? Um, okay, so we now move to Rothna Begum. Thank you. Thank you, Michael, Nadine, and everyone else. Uh, and thank you to you all for joining today on this very important discussion about the impact of COVID-19 on the Middle East. I want to discuss today the not just how the pandemic has highlighted how COVID-19 impacts some more than others, as Ahmed has quite clearly articulated, in particularly unequal ways, but those who are more vulnerable, as well as how it exacerbates inequality in particular against women and migrant workers. So in the Middle East, particularly in the Gulf region, many of you will know that there are tens of millions of migrant workers. They are often the frontline healthcare workers, shopkeepers, delivery drivers, and care workers. And the vast majority are low paid. They often live in segregated areas from the citizen population. In the United Arab Emirates and Qatar, around 90% of the population um, is made up of foreign nationals. So the three key issues that I'll be discussing today. Firstly, the silent pandemic on how lockdowns and measures and other measures on dealing with the pandemic has actually trapped women and domestic workers in situations of violence. Secondly, the issue of the safe return and repatriation of millions of migrant workers who want to come home or are forced to come home. Migrant workers have not only had their health and lives jeopardized by COVID-19, but the measures to deal with the pandemic has also led to job loss, unpaid wages, homelessness, and many are trapped and unable to return home. And thirdly, on how workers are supposed to receive their wages at this time. Tens of thousands are going home, but they've been denied wages that they have actually worked for. And this may be worth millions of dollars. So firstly, domestic violence is a global phenomenon. It's occurred before the pandemic is continued to occur now. And organizations and governments around the world are already reporting on an increase on domestic violence during the pandemic as lockdowns, curfews, and other restrictions are leaving women trapped in their abusers' homes. The Middle East is no exception. This is a region that's already lagging behind in terms of protection for women. Some countries have no protections at all. So in Kuwait, for instance, they actually have no shelter for domestic violence victims. It's quite unusual. Women are also limited in where they can go to escape abuse. Their usual places, the workspace, families and friends' homes, are often a place of safety, but they are now forbidden to them. In Morocco, I remember a woman many years ago telling me how her husband used to beat her repeatedly and sometimes throw her out into the street. 
she would have to go knock on her neighbor's doors to allow her to spend the night there. Now, other than Tunisia, we have not seen any government in the Middle East actually come through on measures to protect domestic violence survivors during the pandemic. Some organizations like in Palestine and Morocco are reporting on increases in the number of women calling their hotline. But most of these other governments do not have any such hotline. They don't have organizations to take on such work. And a lot of the abuse is occurring without anyone knowing about it. Similarly, we have migrant domestic workers who are also trapped in abusive employees' homes because of what's known as a kafala system. This is the visa sponsorship system that, that exists in the Middle East in which migrant workers' visas are tied to their employers and they cannot leave or change jobs without their employer's permission. This means a domestic worker facing abuse, literally escaping out of her employer's house, can be arrested for absconding and, be, uh, and deported. So like domestic violence survivors, curfews and lockdown, lockdown restrictions are trapping them even further. And with entire families required to stay at home, we can expect that many of them are already reporting on increased workloads of up to 21 hours a day without rest or day off, taking care of children who are out of school. They may also be at risk of COVID-19 if they are forced to take care of an ill family member without protective equipment. Families may also be limiting what food they give them. And with increased stress and, and, and impunity, we can also expect that many are uh, at, the, at the other end of verbal, physical and sexual abuse. We have documented repeatedly in the past of domestic workers who have died trying to escape such conditions or even taken their own lives. On the second point, we have the issue of working and living conditions in which migrant workers are under that has been exacerbated by the pandemic. Now, many of these issues have existed before, such as overcrowded and cramped living conditions that mean workers' health are compromised because they cannot socially distance. Some governments are sort of taking the workers out and sort of trying to put them in more socially distanced housing. But moreover, hundreds of thousands of migrant workers in the Gulf are facing job loss, unpaid wages, and many are clamoring to return home. In other cases, workers are just being abandoned. So for instance, in Lebanon, where they've had an economic crisis for months on end, dozens of Ethiopian domestic workers have been dumped outside of their consulate by their employers without their wages and they're struggling to get home. With travel restrictions, many of them could not take a flight. And this is not just the case of domestic workers, this is across the region. Now, as countries lift such restrictions, workers are asking to get home, but flights have doubled or trebled in price. They may have to also pay for testing, and some governments are requiring mandatory quarantining when they get home, but some are charging people for it. Others are unsure about going home where they are worried that getting an income may be even harder now and out of desperation actually staying in the country in the hope for work. The third issue is about how countries of origin and destination are beginning repatriation procedures of such workers. But these are millions of workers and they may be coming home to mounting debt, uh, returning empty-handed or unable to pay off recruitment fees and costs. And without proper controls, Repatriation in these conditions means that employers might take advantage of mass repatriation programs to terminate and return workers who have not been paid their due compensation, wages, and benefits. And states are becoming complicit in overseeing such procedures where millions are returning home without their earned wages or workplace grievances being heard 
nor seeing justice in their situation. Wage theft we're expecting globally will account for millions of dollars to the detriment of workers and the benefit of businesses and employers who will be exempted from any accountability, even as states and banks extend a helpline to reestablish themselves and adjust to the new normal. So I wanna take this opportunity to talk about what are the solutions given these huge problems that we're starting to see. So firstly, in terms of preventing domestic violence and protecting survivors, we need to ensure that governments put into place campaigns to educate um, citizens and, and, and residents that a home should be a safe space and that violence will not be tolerated. And that governments should ensure a hotline that survivors or their families can call if they are in distress and that they should intervene to protect anyone reporting abuse, ensuring safe accommodation for those in distress, and that is compliant with health and safety to protect them from COVID-19. This does not necessarily mean that a survivor has to be removed from our home. It could mean taking the abuser out of that home as well. Often it's women with their children, they don't necessarily need to all be moved away. They can also facilitate filing complaints against employers or abusers. And for domestic workers who want to go home, they need to be ensuring safe repatriation. And on that point of safe repatriation, this means that ensuring that low paid workers are getting assistance to come home, including the payment of return flight tickets, testing, and any quarantine should not be costly and in decent conditions. We should not be seeing, for instance, low paid workers being forced to pay for their own quarantines. And thirdly, we need to ensure an urgent justice mechanism to address the grievances, claims, and labor disputes of repatriated workers who have lost their jobs as a result of the pandemic. And that mechanism needs to be expedited, accessible, affordable, and efficient. What that means is that workers right now who need to get home should be able to get home and still pursue their claim for justice after they have gone home. And lastly, we need long-term solutions as and when lockdowns and restrictions are lifted, including putting in place all forms of measures to prevent domestic violence and protect survivors, strategies on the labor market, as more women than men are likely to be unemployed, including ensuring that women are not being discriminated against, and that there are options for re-entry into the labor market. And for migrant workers, we need to see the ab abolition of the kafala system, where they need to allow workers to change employers or leave their jobs without the threat of arrest and deportation. We should not be looking to go back to the normal that once existed. That normal was always quite abusive, and the pandemic has really highlighted and exacerbated those conditions. So as things move forward, we need to find a new way, a new vision of how we want societies to be rebuilt so it's fairer, equal, and safe for all. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Rathna. Um, I think there's, there's no more um, graphic and damning exposure of the failings of leadership than the systemic reduction of harm and vulnerability against marginalized groups uh, uh, and individuals. So I think this is absolutely really crucial, crucial area for us to consider. Um, okay, so now to our uh, um, third speaker, Dr. Dr. William Hamoudet from Bezet University, over to you. Uh, thank you, Michael, and uh, thank you, Nadine, for all of your organization and for um, having us here. So, what I wanted to touch upon today, um, well, what I wanted to start with was thinking about the pre-existing social and political structures and how they've played out um, 
during COVID in the MENA region very broadly, but then um, like Michael said earlier, I wanna focus in on um, uh, areas in the, uh, or countries in the region undergoing context. And then um, I'll bring in a few, maybe a little bit more detailed examples um, from the Palestinian context to kind of um, show how some of these uh, structures come into play and interact with one another um, during uh, the COVID crisis. And then I'll just touch on a bit of it about looking forward and what actually needs to change in order for us to have um, better conditions. Um, and again, given the time, this is not meant to be um, a comprehensive uh, uh, um, approach, but it's rather an overview. But I think, you know, and there's been a lot of discussion in terms of COVID about the societal and um, um, inequalities and impacts that the crisis has actually had on different countries, both within and between countries. And I think I, I would like to echo also what um, Ahmed said earlier, that we you know, sometimes we talk about the Middle East as if it's one homogeneous, homogeneous entity, and it's obviously not. And there are lots of um, variations uh, between and also within countries. And I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, and the thing is, and if we are looking more closely in terms of how different countries have actually been able to cope with the pandemic and also the measures that have been taken place it's very much um it's very much related to these structures in terms of on both politically and um, societally so the part that i'd actually like to focus a bit more on um you know with with covid we talk a lot about public health impact and for that we want to you know the looking at the health infrastructure is really important and i think that's part of the equation but given that the public health interventions during COVID, a lot of the times have actually included um, these long-term lockdowns um, that have actually put economic activity to halt, that are also expected to have um, lots of economic um, impacts. Um, I think what we sometimes lose sight of is uh, what what kinds of social uh, safety nets or social protection mechanisms actually exist within these countries? And I think, uh, Ratna, you've touched on that a bit in terms of uh, migrant workers and whatnot, but even within citizens themselves. And I think this also has to do with the ways in which, you know, and more broadly, maybe the social contract between people and their governments. Um, and I think, uh, you know, so we see variations. We see, for example, in some of the Gulf countries where there has been a, you know, there was priority put into expanding some of these health services. So, for example, looking at UAE and Qatar, they've actually done relatively well compared to other countries in terms of expanding testing. Um, and also, if we're looking at case mortality rates, they're much lower than what we see globally. But at the same time, this is, of course, when we're talking more in terms of the citizen population, this doesn't always apply to my, to migrant workers and other um, non-citizens within these countries. And 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 so this is. Uh, and so this creates inequalities within, whereas the general picture within the country maybe looks better than some other sites. Um, but what we also have is, you know, we have a lot of these um, countries that are, you know, that have not been states for very long um, and have also gone through significant transformations in terms of the different governments um, with the so-called Arab Spring that's also put a strain on some of these capacities and also um, the pre-existing structures. And I think this is where we see like a lot of the variations. So for example, um, 
you know, uh, with Egypt, this was like a very, uh, in the beginning, for example, the government was kind of denying almost um, that there was a problem, but then all of a sudden the jump, the numbers jumped quite dramatically. Um, and and we have, you know, and also, although the case fatality rates are not very high compared to globally, they're not amongst the lowest in the countries. And then you have other countries like Syria um, with ongoing uh, conflicts, and you have a lot of disparities within countries, I mean, sorry, within um, regions of Syria. Um, and and you have an, a health system that's been strained by war um, internally. And, and so that's also strained the ability of these countries to actually deal with it. And then you have other countries um, or contexts, let's say, where there's sort of been periods of conflict in and out, and then that has intensified over the years. And I think um, Yemen is one of those places and where we see sort of the Dutch, you know, it's just the horrible impact of the of the war on Yemen. Already at baseline, we're starting off with um, a lot of poverty, malnutrition, you know, starvation, and a very weak health infrastructure even before this current crisis, but then that's become much weaker. And this is where we see one of the highest um, case mortality rates, you know, probably globally, where 25 to 27 percent um, uh, case uh, fatality rates, and that's also. But and we have to keep in mind that there are probably lots of cases that we um, that are unconfirmed to begin with, and these. You know, and I think these things are not new because they actually go back to how much investment has, has actually been put into um, social welfare, including healthcare and education. And in a lot of these contexts, whether, you know, and I can speak maybe a little bit more in, in, in the Palestinian setting, um, but also like in Jordan and Lebanon, you've seen a push more recently towards more neoliberal models in terms of how goods and services are provided to people. There's been increasing privatization. Lebanon, I mean, before, the COVID crisis, there was already um, the political crisis that stemmed from these economic inequalities. And that's um, been one of the big things. And right now, with, um, and right now, sort of it's the interaction between COVID and these underlying um, political and social uh, conditions and um, have ha really had detrimental impacts. And so we see inflation, the devaluation of the, of the Lebanese pound, um, the protests that had started earlier had stopped for a while during um, lockdown measures, but then have um, restarted again. In terms of the public health situation, things still look pretty contained, but, um, but then you know, what we might actually see is, you know, now they're saying that um, there are different estimates that are saying 75% of the population might go into uh, food pover uh, poverty and food insecurity, which then they might have, um, will have health consequences beyond just COVID. And so this is going to be one of the main things. And then you know, there's also an influx of refugees into these countries. Um, and in Jordan, um, and like in Palestine, there were very strict measures in terms of lockdown very early on because there was a recognition that we don't have the health infrastructure to actually deal um, with a large scale outbreak. And so the strategy very early on was a very strict um, uh, lockdown. With, uh, with restrictions on movement um, and, also, and, and a stop to a lot of economic activity. But what's important to note here is that these lockdowns, for example, in Palestine lasted for almost three months, in Jordan similarly. Um, these lockdowns 
helped sort of control the public health situation, but at the same time, there wasn't really any sort of intervention from the government to try to mitigate some of the um, economic or social impacts, or at least not adequate intervention. I mean, there were a few attempts here and there, but given also that we're dealing with a baseline of, um, you know, resource poor environments that are also very heavily aid dependent, um, these things have actually been highlighted more. And I think what part of the problem is, you know, we talk about in the Palestinian case, especially we talked about a lot about the inability of the health system to cope with large scale outbreaks. But what we forget to really talk about is why has there been the systematic development of the healthcare system. And I think in similar, similarly to other conflict countries, um, a big part of that has to do with the political context that has to do with sort of the more, um, you know, for example, if we're looking at Gaza, uh, we see, you know, over the years, the consequent wars that have had um, detrimental effects on the infrastructure for healthcare. But even if we're looking beyond that in terms of the approach to system building, and I think that has a lot to do with even the political structures that have um, taken form, um, there's and, and here maybe I'll, I'll kind of highlight a few things from the Palestinian context, but I think um, they, um, so given the political situation, what we see is like there's a lot of fragmentation in terms of um, the geophysical fragmentation. So we think of, you know, some people assume that there are country, you know, that there's an Israel and there's a Palestine and they exist with very clear boundaries, um, but that's not the case. And now I think also with, you know, with talks of annexation, it's important to remember that these are ongoing um, facts on the ground that have been created, where basically, for example, if you look at the map of the West Bank, you see um, uh, enclaves spread throughout the West Bank that are surrounded by um, settlements, illegal, illegal settlements that have existed for a long period of time. Why is that important? It's important because what that does, if you're thinking from like a health system point of view and you're thinking of trying to develop um, a coherent health system, first of all, the geographic uh, discontinuity and the fragmentation that exists makes it more difficult to actually plan um, and use resources in a very rational way, aside from even like the political issues. And what you see is there's also a lot of duplication of resources. Sometimes there's infrastructure that's being duplicated in areas if you're looking on a map are fairly close to one another, but because of the geopolitical distance, um, it's much more difficult to access services and this existed before COVID. And then if you, and then on top of that, you have occasional spikes in conflict um, where there is more destruction to lives and livelihood and also infrastructure. And we see that maybe more obviously or more clearly with Gaza, um, but at the same time, uh, what that does is that it makes it you're constantly in emergency mode and the way so the government has developmental plans but at the same time is very much aid dependent and the political context uh, due to the economic conditions but also largely impacted by the political context it's a very aid dependent um, system and that aid dependence also means that you're continuing to work within sort of that framework of humanitarianism and emergency um, operations, which, you know, might in the short time, a short term um, help mitigate some catastrophes or improve certain indicators, especially the ones that um, international aid, aid cares about a bit more. But at the same time, if you're thinking longer term and developmentally, it doesn't actually do much in terms of developing um, the health system. And I found it very striking that like even reviewing materials from 30 and 40 years ago, and even before the Palestinian Authority was established, um, 
and you saw sort of these blueprints uh, for what needed to happen in terms of coordination and, and kind of easing off the dependence on aid. And you see um, reports and in different analyses now, and they're almost identical. So despite the, and so, you know, despite all the aid that's been poured in, um, we haven't actually seen that, seen that um, convert uh, or become a uh, turn into development because it's 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 mostly been dealing in terms of the, these short-term humanitarian aid systems and then the other thing is the political context or like the conflict in general because um and I, so for maybe to give a little bit of background so the palestinian authority was established as a byproduct of the oslo accords um and started taking over some of these social services that used to be provided uh, by the Israeli civil administration that was under the Israeli military um, that operated in the West Bank and Gaza. And, um, and so the idea was that gradually the Palestinian Authority would have a full jurisdiction, but areas were divided into A, B, and C. Um, areas A were the ones that had full jurisdiction from the very beginning. Um, and then B and then C. And it's important to note that 60% of the West Bank, for example, is area C. And what that means is Israel is actually in charge um, of both security and civil affairs. Uh, so even things like setting up clinics, providing services, or even implementing or monitoring um, the lockdowns um, are very hard to do in some of these areas. And, and those were actually very important gaps in terms of the Palestinian response, because the inability to control some of these even porous borders um, to an extent meant that people were, in some areas, people were going in and out and, and the cases in Israel were much higher. And that also led to um, transmission in some of, especially the areas with um, closer to the separation wall and areas that also depended on work um, in Israel. But it also means that in order for the Palestinian Authority to implement their policies within these areas, they need to wait for the proper Israeli approvals. And, and that causes delay. And we know that in the pandemic, what that means, uh, delays can actually be detrimental um, and, and have um, catastrophic health impacts. And the other thing in terms of also not being able to control your own uh, borders, um, it also means in a global moment where everybody's kind of competing over um, access to protect, uh, you know, PPE, um, testing kits, and all this stuff. Uh, we can't really compete, even you know, even assuming that the money is there, even though there's a big question mark, um, and all of that needs to go through. Um, um, through either the Israeli airports or through the border areas between Jordan and um, the West Bank that are also Israeli controlled. And that's also created um, a problem in terms of the response and there have been periods where testing kits were, for example, um, there was a shortage in testing kits. Um, and now I think if, so maybe if uh, I say that in the beginning, I think a lot of people actually praise the Palestinian Authority in terms of the very quick and swift response, um, the lockdown measures, um, which really worked to kind of contain the numbers. But then, like I said earlier, because there wasn't really um, there weren't really any provisions uh, for people in terms of the economic um, impacts, uh, things ended up opening much more quickly instead of the more gradual approach. And now in the last 15 days, we've actually had three times the number of cases that we started off with two weeks ago. So it's it's a very scary um, public health um, 
problem right now. And at the same time, the government is even weaker in terms of greater mistrust and the lack of ability to cope given the decades long de-development. And, and I think, and maybe I'll, um, I, I, I'm out of, uh, running out of time, but what I'd like to say is in thinking about sort of moving forward and what, um, what kind of leadership do we need? And I think some of the things that worked well early on were greater transparency, working within lo local communities, especially to um, maybe go around some of these other restrictions. But what we really do need to think about in the more long-term, especially in conflict settings, is how do we think about these settings in a, you know, in a way where we prioritize um, adjust onto the political situation, uh, to the political conflict, and also think more developmentally rather Rather than this, uh, rather than fixating on emergency and humani humanitarianism, um, which can be detrimental in the long term. So I'll end here and I look forward to the questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, William. I, I um, that's such an important um, challenge in in conflict, post-conflict areas in the region to to think beyond humanitarianism, because often these humanitarian models are institutionalized into the very lives. Of these countries and peoples and often constrains constrains their full development and often depoliticizes the political choices which need to be taken. Now I'll try and get in a couple of rounds of questions before the um, we have to finish and what I'll do is I will just uh, if I go two questions at a time I think and ask the panelists to um, um, respond as they as they see fit and I'll just uh, pick up the question. The questions you can you can um, suggest questions for the questions and answers box uh, on the which is a, on the bottom of the Zoom page. But let's start off um, straight away. Um, first two questions: Mohammed Tofik Ali, um, will the COVID nineteen pandemic mark the end game for Iraq's, Syria's, and Lebanon's mass popular uprising? Um, Another question, but let's hold it. Let's hold it with that question. To what extent is the uh, the pandemic something which will accentuate or finish the the sort of mass mobilization? And the second question, Gillian Dare. Um, this is this this is a really important question in terms of of public health um, uh, prevention and treatment. To what extent the, the the reports from Iraq and the region indicate that stigma in the MENA region associated with uh, COVID, it's preventing people from admitting to infection, getting tests or seeking treatment or taking precautions, thus contributing to the spread intensification of the pandemic. How can this stigma be addressed and who should take responsibility for addressing this issue? So a question about the, the, the politics of the mobilizations, the impact of the pandemic on that, and the question about, quite a specific question about addressing the issue of stigma and overcoming that to ensure that people are able to, to report and get treatment and test. Any of our panelists like to respond to either of those questions? You don't have to. <laughs> I, I don't mind, but um, I thought maybe Ahmed wants to take a public health one. Um, I'm happy to yeah, please go ahead with the public health one yeah, on stigma. Sure. So stigma, I mean, we have been seeing not just stigma against people who have COVID-19, but also xenophobia, has really been on the increase against migrant workers, believing that they're actually spreading this against refugees as well. So in Lebanon, for instance, um, you're seeing Syrian and Palestinian refugees who are also being 
stigmatized as being the bringers of COVID-19. Um, I think the issue is that the governments in these regions rarely tackle stigma uh, in general. So when we've talked about rape victims in the past, for instance, they don't tackle stigma. And it is a duty of the governments to really come through and tackle this very important topic. And the way in which they could tackle it is to frame in a public health framing, which is that you need to have testing to protect the wider population. And those who do have it, survive from it, may actually be slightly better off than those who don't have it. And just to really understand that we're all in this together. So actually good communication messaging coming from governments would be incredibly helpful at this time. But we're not seeing that. So when we're seeing xenophobic messaging coming out in Gulf governments and Gulf countries, we have not seen enough being done to actually tackle it. And when they do say things like, oh, so-and-so said this, and they were after the so on, um, a social media influencer, for instance, for saying something, they tend to tackle it in, in the wrong way, you know, in the wrong manner, for instance. Like, just to give you an example, in Kuwait, we had one influencer complaining about this being a good time to purge the country of migrants. Mm. And then another influencer came along and said, well, we're not talking about Egyptians. We're really talking about the others, the South Asians here. So that's a, an example of how the dynamic of xenophobia increases. And instead of the government and legislators and others taking this opportunity to talk about why like xenophobia is actually is bad for public health, not just it's bad in itself and bad for human rights, it's bad for public health purposes, but they're not taking a really good stand on actually tackling this in this way. And I think the World Health Organization and others, other governments who are allies and friends, should be using this opportunity to basically go to these governments and say it's in your own interest to be tackling stigma and these kind of issues. Um, Thank you. Any any response to the one about the popular mobilization? Can I ask Sarah to ask if that's okay? Oh yeah, please, please. Uh, yeah, so I think to this point, um, what happened here locally was initially because a lot of the cases that were um, being uh, confirmed were actually related to workers that were working uh, within Israel. And, and so there was a lot of stigmatization and there was a lot of um, sort of these resentments and negative sentiments through them. And to give the government credit, they did try to do an orchestrated campaign with commercials and other things and also in um, press releases to try to minimize some of that and I think um, and I, I would like so I think some of that messaging is really important and it can play a role but it, what I would also like to add is I think working with in um, uh, community organizations also plays a role because sometimes you know these people live within communities and kind of emphasizing what the impacts will be sort of on the broader community um, but then treating it just like any other um, illness or disease is really important. Riam do you want to take the problem mobilization otherwise I can answer that one as well. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean I, I can be very I don't think it's going to get rid of the mobilization because at least what we're seeing, for example, in Lebanon, it's only going to increase, yeah. especially with conditions worsening. Um, and what I, I would like to respond to something related to that now um, that Khalid mentioned, it is time for a new social contract. It is time for a different relationship between those who are ruled and the rulers in the region. Um, but I think, and it is a, a time for inward looking, but we also need to remember the geopolitical context, which is not always localized. Um, and I'm not going to get into it too much here, but it, and I think there was a question about annexation, maybe I'll get into it then, but I think some of these countries have these policies, not because it, I mean, partly there is corruption and partly there are political failures within countries, but there are also international bodies 
pushing certain agendas and in more functional contexts, these tend to um, have greater impacts that can, can be detrimental for citizens or populations. Michael, I can come in at one point. Yes, please. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I actually want to tie uh, all three pieces together, the concept of the social contract, the whether the COVID could end up, uh, could end conflicts, or even the issue of stigma. The fact of the matter is, and I agree with, with Khalid that, that what's needed really is a social contract, which uh, I, I suppose Minush used in the morning. But the trouble with me, I mean, let, let me make a couple of comments. The first one is I actually completely agree. It's the nature of the relationship and nature of the contract between those in power and those who are being ruled that determine pretty much most outcomes. So if you want to talk about the, the uh, COVID ending a conflict, no, it doesn't, because the problem is somewhere else. The problem is really in the, in the power struggle and who is in power and whose interest is being served uh, under what conditions. The stigma, it's blaming the victim. I mean, I don't think actually people, uh, we have a funny saying, uh, just to deviate from the serious uh, discussion that we are having now in Arabic, and you wouldn't know, Michael, I, I guess. If the belly dance is a can rabbul bayt bin duffi daribun fashima to ahlul bayt raqs wa zamru. If the head of the household is drumming, the rest of the household will be dance and, and dance. Uh, I, what I'm trying to say is saying the stigma issue. Well, if the rulers, if the regime is not providing the testing, is not uh, providing the facts, is not uh, uh, is not behaving in an honest way that people trust and believe that they are doing the right thing for them. Trump is being uh, attacked quite a bit on appearing on in, in public, not wanting to put the uh, that thing on the nose because it doesn't look presidential. Well, a lot of Americans would, would, would follow him. So I wouldn't want to blame the victim. I would actually blame it on the system and the system it's because of the bad social contract that uh, that people have in the region. And this is really where the, the problem is. I mean, it's easy to sit there, uh, whether it's uh, in, the, in the opening session or now, and say that what we need, this region needs a new social contract. The real question is not whether we know that. The question is, uh, the real question is, how do you bring it about? And there has been an attempt to bring it about, and the outcome has not been very a very happy one. The Arab Spring didn't end up with, with countries with the new social contract that they were aspiring to have. So it's going to be an ongoing struggle. It's not because I would sit here and say that the region needs a new social contract that will make it happen. It's going to be the people in the region who are impacted and working hard to change the, 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 the regimes in the direction that's good for everybody. Sorry, I'm becoming a revolutionary at an old age, but what can you do? <laughs> Thank you very much. There's a lot of questions. So I'm, I'm going to, uh, I apologize if I, I miss people out because I think I'm going to select some of these. There's, there's a really important, I think, public health question about is what can we do effectively to try to prevent the spread of, 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 of the pandemic in refugee camps? There's a, there's a governance question about um, uh, the, the need to generate reliable uh, statistics on, on the infection and the uh, treatment. And, you know, what do we do in a situation where national government's capacity in terms of data collection is so constrained? 
and and we am you have a you have a question addressed to you about the uh, impending if it is annexation Israeli annexation and to what extent the 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 the, the uh, pandemic is completely separate from that or might play some kind of part in the Israeli calculation about when they might do that. Thank you. So there are three, three out there. Any of you welcome to uh, respond to any of those? I will take the statistics. Good. Recently, there was a World Bank report uh, about the Middle East. And essentially, that's, uh, the, the common theme of the report was uh, the, the, the value of statistics they reveal facts they reveal reality they they guide our thinking they help actually they claim in that report that there is one main reason why the region is not making progress is because of statistics uh, they don't have transparency and transparency is a key word to everything in life and that's usually what happens when someone is busy with one issue they always make it the most important thing in life anyway I was a commentator in that report, and I found myself making a similar comment that, that to the one I made a bit earlier, and I'm going to repeat it here, which is statistics is revealing facts. And there are people who are in power who decide to reveal certain facts and not other facts. They reveal the facts that perpetuate their stay in power. They don't reveal the facts that will undermine their power. And in, in, a, in a very serious sense, uh, it, it is related to the same issue that I have just commented on. Now, of course, there are some technical difficulties that can be overcome with some help, right? I mean, if you don't have the, the materials, the computers, the surveying people, there is and that, well, that's fine. But I believe that the real problem is never or hardly ever in that neighborhood. The real problem is always in politics. So I'm sorry, it's politics, politics, politics. Thank you. Thank you. Um. Rathna, do you want to say something? Because maybe I'll connect the three questions together. Sure, go ahead. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I think that's important about the statistics. It is political um, because, I mean, numbers are also very political in terms of what we decide to measure and how we measure it. Um, and, yeah, and I agree that some governments are probably not revealing all the statistics because they um, have a certain image to uphold. And I think that does create a lot of mistrust. And what we learned from the earlier part of this was the transparency um, that was there initially, even in like the almost daily press um, conferences and, um, and sharing of information and also discussing procedures more openly than the government had been, let's say for at least the last five to 10 years was something people really appreciated, but then that suddenly came to a halt. Um, so this is something that is important. Um, in terms of what should be done to minimize um, spread in refugee camps, and I think this also touches on the, the statistics, because you can't actually have an idea of the scope of spread without wide-scale testing. And so you do need to, you know, on a very basic level, increase capacities, but then have a plan for what you'd actually do with testing. Um, and I think with refugee populations, um, it's very difficult for, them, for people to isolate uh, within camps. And this is where some of the, those relationships with host countries are really important. And I think 
Um, and especially since some of these refugees have actually been there for years, they need to, especially in times of pandemic, they need to be treated just like any other um, citizen or with the same sort of entitlements, even if temporarily so, um, for the sake of not spreading the, um, not spreading the virus. Um, and so testing and also working within um, communities to also kind of, uh, um, to increase sort of the, the feedback loop between community and um, officials, I think can be a really important and probably cost effective impact. And what we saw also in Lebanon, what we saw in some of the refugee camps here was community uh, where it was that local leaders were actually taking it upon themselves to protect the camps from the outside rather than because they knew, for example, that you couldn't socially distance within the camp. Um, they were actually restricting entry um, to the camp from outsiders and kind of monitoring in that way. And to, a, and to an extent, it might have worked. Um, and we still see fewer numbers than we expected, but that, but we also don't know if that's an issue of testing or not. And this is where you need both to really accurately assess the situation. Um, in terms of the question about annexation and pandemic, and this is where I want to connect to um, uh, something that Khaled noted that, that I, um, uh, that I want to mention. So I think part of the fallacy here is treating annexation as if it's this one-time event. It's not. Um, and like I said earlier, we're talking about the different, um, just, uh, you know, the different administrative um, designations or categories that are used for different areas in the West Bank. The areas that are um, that are being talked about for annexation are areas that are classified predominantly as Area C, um, according to the Oslo Accords, that were all supposed to become under the Palestinian Authority's jurisdiction in 2000. And that was, um, this is what was supposed to happen in terms of the interim agreement. Um, these are areas that Israel has made both, uh, maintained both civil and um, security control over. Um, so in some some specific villages, people even need permits to enter in and out, or, or you need to be a resident of the. So there is a very complex bureaucratic regime in place um, that administers these areas. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that even though there is a Palestinian authority, there is a government, um, and and there is a lots of blame to be put there. There's also one sovereign state, and that's Israel at the, in the, at the moment. Um, and so annexation, it's not really creating new facts on the ground. What it actually would do is codify that into law. Um, and connecting to Khaled's point, and I think, like I said, um, and I don't want to get into it too much, but there is a lot to be said about corruption and what things can be done differently. But if we're thinking even the areas that are um, now under threat of formal annexation, these are areas where there are lots of resources and the World Bank in 2013 said the Palestinian economy loses out on $3 billion annually um, because it's not actually allowed to develop these areas. Um, you have also, for example, like resources in, in the Dead Sea, in the Jordan Valley, which is the agricultural um, hub. Um, and these are supposed to be Palestinian lands that Palestinians don't have any sort of control over. And that's been consistent for a very long period of time. And there's been a systematic um, policies also push people off of their land. So they have to, for example, get permits to be able to um, reach their agricultural lands. Uh, a few days ago, one of the um, Israeli human rights organizations released a statistic that this year, 84% of permits to access agricultural lands um, by Palestinians, their own lands, but are, that are behind the wall or um, in areas that are con considered military zones, were, den were denied for 84% of applications. 
And so this is systematic. And then after a certain number of years, Israel uses older British mandate period laws or Ottoman laws to then use that um, to confiscate those lands because then it becomes neglected property. Um, and so you have these things that, are, that have been ha having, happening systematically. And this is, this is um, basically how colonization works. It's not just this one-off thing. It's not, um, and it, it happens very systematically, sometimes more quietly than others. But now we're just hearing a lot about it because it's, there's a threat of codifying it into law, but it's actually important to recognize um, that Israel has been controlling this area. And it is also one of the areas, uh, one of the reasons um, why this economic and other forms of de-development have continued to take place. Um, and I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Rosna, you have, you have the last word, if you want it. Um, I want to go back to the rentier state that Khalid mentioned, mm. and I think because this is at the crux of a lot of the issues that we're seeing, it's the reason for why people don't trust the government. But I think one thing to reflect on is that some of the Gulf governments, some of the countries which you know have this kind of uh, power, power structure, are now using this to say, this is great, because look, this is this is exactly how you need it. You need a strong authoritarian government to be able to do lockdown measures to contain the pandemic, right? China, Singapore, the Gulf are all kind of these kind of governments who are really using this opportunity to say that of why you should be denied rights, right? Basic rights. But at the same time, you're seeing the problems of that, which is the fact that lack of transparency, the fact of not having facts, people are not trusting it. Would they really be able to abide by it? What are the consequences on that on the civil political level as well? But in the other one, I want to actually refer to uh, the social contract between uh, citizen population and women and migrant workers, right? So you have a state that basically says you uh, obey me and we will provide all of these different things for you. And in return, you can then be the guardian of the women. So you have men who basically are the heads of the households and they, got the, they, are the, they have their own fiefdoms, right? And so they can rule as they will. And in the same way, these citizens are then the heads are, are then above migrant workers and they can control the migrant workers. So there is a social contract that basically um, delegates responsibility of humans to humans, right? In such ways that gives us a huge amount of control where no one wants to give up this power and this control relationship, but which in itself creates a huge amount of abuse and exploitation that the governments are really um, benefiting as a result of, right? So to talk when we talk about domestic violence, when we talk about abuse of migrant workers, which are inherently mainly done by employers, we look at it at an individual level, but it is a state level violation of human rights. And so we need to acknowledge again that it's a state that's committing this, whether it's at the rentier state in which they delegate out this responsibility, but in essence are failing to actually protect vulnerable populations, but also making them vulnerable, right? Women are not inherently vulnerable. Migrant workers are coming empowered if they want to be, but they're putting them in positions of vulnerability. And the COVID-19 pandemic has really highlighted all of these inequalities and exacerbated all of that as well. So whether you're a migrant worker, a refugee or a woman or any of the marginalized group, you should never have been in that situation in the first place. And now you're in a much worse situation. So what we want to see going forward is, you know, right now, yes, all the measures that they're taking should be done in a way that actually makes society safe for all. Because what we realize is that the clear as the more unequal we are, the less safe we all are. Right. So going forward, we need to actually break down those structures, break down that rentier style of economy and that and that state power structure that would actually allow for a safer society for all of us that actually does in the end protect human rights as well. 
that's that's a very eloquent way, very political way as well, uh, and welcome way, I would say, to finish. I apologize, everybody. There is a plenary session coming up, uh, so we, we, we can't go on longer. I know there are more questions to ask, so uh, I do apologize. We haven't been able to, to ask more questions, but I want to thank very much the presenters for their presentations. The fact there were so many questions is, is, is testament to the the quality of their of their presentations, um, and I, I want to uh, uh, thank also Khalid for his his response to the presenters and setting up that more general discussion about the social contract. Um, and to my LSE colleagues who who uh, both organised this, we have a I should have introduced him. We have a, a student rapporteur Hassan who had to, who somehow has to make sense of all this discussion in about ten minutes and take it to the plenary session. So so good luck, Hassan. <laughs> And um, lastly, to all of you for, for joining us, the audience, for this session. Uh, this, this session will be available as a, as a podcast for the Middle East Centre uh, website.